0: This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I opened this season with these next words. I'm repeating them here just to reiterate that captivity and the loss of freedom and autonomy that comes with it can take many different forms. Captivity is the condition of being imprisoned or confined. This confinement can be as short as a few hours or as long as a lifetime. Captivity is also complex, as we've seen with some of the cases already covered in this season. To be held captive doesn't always mean that a person is locked in a cage or chained to a wall. It can be a nuanced experience where control and coercion are exerted in a myriad of ways. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, captive individuals were bought, sold and displayed as spectacle for paying audiences. They were not hidden away as shameful secrets or viewed as a stain on their master's character. Instead, they were promoted and marketed within human zoos. Sometimes individuals with physical deformities and abnormal appearances were sold by their families to freak shows. Sometimes they had no choice but to sell their services and bodies to untrustworthy and exploitative promoters to avoid becoming destitute. Often, there was a racial component to those being displayed. The more unusual and exotic the individual, the more money that could be made by unscrupulous exhibitors. And what was seen as exotic and rare was very much in the eye of the beholder. And that beholder was almost exclusively the wealthy, elite, and dominant culture of whatever country this was happening in. I intend to cover the exploitation that occurred in freak shows, carnivals, and to others with physical deformities who had no social safety net to protect them from predatory practices in a future episode, either on this podcast or on another project. This episode looks at the dark history of human zoos by following several stories Most specifically, the story of Sarah Bartman. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. We can't discuss human zoos without first looking at the conditions that allowed them to not only exist, but to flourish in the United States and Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. The very concept of exhibiting human beings to paying audiences is one that is steeped in colonialism, eugenics and scientific racism. Author Jürgen Osterhammel describes colonialism as being, quote, a relationship between an indigenous or forcibly imported majority and minority of foreign invaders." End quote. He says, quote, The fundamental decisions affecting the lives of the colonized people are made and implemented by the colonial rulers in pursuit of interests that are often defined in a distant metropolis. Rejecting cultural compromises with the colonized population the colonizers are convinced of their own superiority and their ordained mandate to rule. End quote. We can apply colonialism to refer to any country or civilization that has attempted to forcibly subjugate another population. In modern terms, this can refer to the British, French, American, Japanese, Chinese, Spanish, Portuguese, German, Dutch, and Belgian former empires. We can also see a play out in Israel and their treatment of the Palestinian people. Most of these countries also practice cultural imperialism, which includes the gradual erasure of the native culture, language, traditions, and religion in favor of the beliefs, language, and culture of the colonizers. This was frequently implemented by violence and force. The conditions put in place by rapid colonial expansion in the European context allowed for dangerous and highly flawed ideas around race and specific ethnic groups to proliferate. These ideas were supposedly legitimised by the powerful elite in each respective country through the prism of science and extensive research. The reality was very different. In most cases, those seeking to uncover evidence of a racial and ethnic hierarchy already believed that they were at the top of this imaginary pyramid. Therefore, every piece of evidence uncovered served to only reinforce beliefs that they already held. The concept of eugenics predates the actual term eugenics. In 400 BC, Plato suggested applying selective breeding to humans so that supposed high-quality individuals could be paired together to encourage the physical and mental traits favoured by that society. A form of eugenics was also practised in ancient Sparta, where infanticide was common and any child who had an obvious physical deformity was immediately killed or left outside to die of exposure. According to a history article that you can find in the show notes, Eugenics is advocating for improving the human species by selectively mating people with desirable hereditary traits. Proponents of eugenics encouraged healthy, quote, superior people to reproduce and discouraged undesirable people from reproducing. Who was deemed undesirable was left entirely up to those who were defining the term. This was often those in power or those with a vested interest in subjugating another group of people. From 1900 onwards, those in support of eugenics across Europe and the United States forcibly sterilized tens of thousands of individuals they deemed inferior, often without their knowledge or consent. This included those with intellectual disabilities, mental illness, the poor and those of supposed inferior ethnic groups. The modern eugenics movement developed side by side with the scientific racism movement and indeed shared a lot of similarities. A National Human Genome Research Institute article defines eugenics as, quote, the scientifically erroneous and immoral theory of racial purity and planned breeding, end quote. That same article defines scientific racism as being, quote, an ideology that appropriates the methods and legitimacy of science to argue for the superiority of white Europeans and the inferiority of non white people. End quote. Within scientific racism, phrenology was one of the practices used to offer supposed scientific proof of the race based hierarchy. Phrenology measures skull contours and links them to predict mental traits in an individual or a group of people. Thankfully, this has since been debunked as pseudoscience but in the 19th century it was part of a growing fad to categorize the perceived worth and capabilities of specific ethnic groups. Contrary to popular belief, this racial categorization was not based just on skin color but was applied to any group that those in power deemed inferior such as Africans, Indians, Asians, Indigenous people, the Irish, jewish and muslims and you might be surprised to find the irish in there but up until the 1970s the white establishment in america and in britain and in parts of europe did not view irish people as being white or at least not white enough for example in victorian britain and 19th century america anti-irish and anti-catholic sentiment were rampant Irish people were categorised as ignorant, uneducated, violent, and drunk. The racist British magazine Punch regularly depicted the Irish as degenerates and used phrenology to justify this categorization. Many depictions in Punch portrayed the Irish as having bestial and ape-like features. These false and discriminatory beliefs followed through into the 20th century. American writer H.P. Lovecraft known now for his rabid racism as much as for his writing, had the following to say about Ireland in 1921. He wrote the following statement concerning the possibility of an Irish independent state. He said, quote, If the Irish had the right to independence, they would possess it. If they ever gain it, they will possess it until they lose it again. England has the right to rule because she does. It is not chance, but racial superiority, which has made the Britain supreme. Why have not the Irish conquered and colonised the earth if they be so deserving of regard? They are brainless canaille. Canaille is a word of French origin that I had actually never come across before, despite studying French for several years. And it basically means a rabble or a mob or an unruly crowd. Collectively, these movements sought to reinforce racist and xenophobic beliefs about particular ethnic groups. And in othering these groups, the dominant group, usually the coloniser, could further separate themselves from the colonised. This is true of British portrayals of the Irish, indigenous populations in Africa, India, Australia and the Americas, And any ethnic group that European colonisers deemed worthy of physical and cultural subjugation. The crux of this is that these empires or dominant groups just didn't see us as people. Skin colour, ethnicity, physical attributes, language, culture, nature, these were simply excuses they gave themselves to justify their hate and bigotry. None of it is true. None of it is based in fact or steeped in reality, regardless of the supposed veracity of such claims. These are the stories they tell themselves. They were and are fables agreed upon. These stories were propagated and stoked simply because this narrative somehow benefited the ones who created and repeated them. The fact that these stories and stereotypes are so easily interchangeable between races and ethnicities proves that they are not real. They are a fabrication. They're literally pulled out of thin air. They are about power, control and the subjugation of particular groups for the benefit of those seeking to exploit them. On the one hand, the dominant culture would build up the savage enemy group as being fierce, dangerous and just waiting to attack and ravage the civilized populations, and on the other they would denigrate them as being less than, subhuman, unworthy of human rights, possessing low IQs and entirely incapable of governing themselves. I suppose this binary opposition of the colonized being the greatest enemy to ever exist, while simultaneously being incapable of independent thought, gave great comfort to the colonizers who created these narratives. Human curiosities have always been displayed for profit. This has been true throughout human history. Sometimes the person being exhibited actively participated in the exhibit and put on a show for spectators. For some, particularly those with a disability, deformity or physical trait that made them stand out from the general population, this was a necessity to keep them alive and sustain their families. For others, coercive control, exploitation and even slavery conspired to display them without their consent. In America, human zoos and freak shows were a regular form of entertainment. Phineas Taylor Barnum, known publicly as P.T. Barnum, was a showman, promoter and circus owner who displayed people all over North America and Europe. He also perpetrated multiple hoaxes and created fantastical stories about the people in his exhibits, most of which were completely untrue. One of the earliest hoaxes that Barnum was responsible for was the exploitation of Joyce Heath whom he claimed was the 161-year-old former wet nurse of George Washington. Joyce Heath's birth year is unknown. It's estimated that she was born circa 1756 and almost definitely into slavery. Accords on her early life don't exist, and even if they did, they would likely just list her as chattel, the property of a slave owner, listed among his possessions along with animals, property and furniture. Joyce was a black American slave. We can speculate that she had a husband and children and probably even grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But none of these facts about her life are on record. No one asked and even if they had, no one cared to record the answers. Joyce's written records began in 1835 when she was purchased by a man called John S. Bowling. She was exhibited in Kentucky. Later that same year, she was sold again to two men called Lindsay and Bartram. They falsely displayed Joyce as having been the childhood nurse of George Washington. George Washington was born in 1732, meaning that his birth predated Joyce's by 24 years. But this didn't stop Lindsay and Bartram. In 1835, Joyce was approximately 79 years old, frail, blind and partially paralysed. Lindsay fabricated a narrative around Joyce to extract the maximum value from the public. A public who would pay him to view her. But this was unsuccessful and resulted in him selling Joyce to P.T. Barnum. Barnum refined the story of Joyce's background and printed posters containing the following text. Quote, Joyce Heath is unquestionably the most astonishing and interesting curiosity in the world. She was the slave of Augustine Washington, the father of General Washington, and was the first person who put clothes on the unconscious infant who, in after days, led our heroic fathers on to glory, to victory and freedom. To use her own language when speaking of the illustrious father of this country, she raised him. Joyce Heath was born in the year 1674, and has, consequently, now arrived at the astonishing age of 161 years end quote." There are a couple of things about this that really jump out at me. Firstly, the outrageous lies. Secondly, it was so clearly written by a man, a man who knows nothing about childbirth and assumes, in error, that babies are born unconscious and not kicking and screaming into this world. On the 11th of August 1835, Barnum began to exhibit Joyce at Niblo's Garden, a theatre in Soho, Manhattan. Author Harriet Washington described Joyce as having a very small frame, deep wrinkles, and being almost entirely toothless. For many who saw her, Joyce's appearance was proof enough that she was 161 years old, as claimed by those who displayed her. Others, including the press at the time, doubted Barnum's claims. Joyce died on the 19th of February, 1836, just seven months after Barnum had first started to exhibit her. However, this wouldn't be the end of Joyce's exploitation for profit. Almost immediately after Joyce's death, Barnum announced that there would be a public autopsy. Dr. David L. Rogers, a New York surgeon, was engaged to conduct the autopsy. Tickets were sold to spectators for 50 cents per person. Rogers began the autopsy before an audience of 1,500 people. To Barnum's consternation, Rogers declared in front of that same large audience, that Joyce was not in fact 161 years old, as he had claimed. To cover for his fraud, Barnum announced that the body being dissected was not actually Joyce, and that she was alive and well and on tour in Europe. Once a conman, always a conman. Later, Barnum admitted to the story being a hoax. By this time, Joyce was dead. And he had extracted as much financial value from her in life as well as in death that he had nothing left to lose. Perhaps the most infamous tale of exploitation in human zoos is the story of Sarah Bartman. Sarah was a South African woman born in the Eastern Cape in 1789. It's doubtful that Sarah Bartman was her given name. Records indicate her name as being Sarah, Sarah and there are even a couple of other variations, but we'll likely never know for sure. The Dutch had established the first permanent colony in South Africa in Cape Town in 1652, and would remain a dominant force in the region for much of the next 350 years. By the time Sarah was an adult, the Dutch Cape Colony had become a British colony. Sarah's mother died while she was a young child and her father was reportedly killed by a bushman while driving cattle. When she was 16 years old, she was married and reportedly had one child who died in infancy. She spent her childhood and adolescent years working on Dutch European farms, likely as a servant. South African history online tell us that Sarah's husband was murdered by Dutch colonists in 1805. Soon after this, she met a free black trader called Peter Willem Cesar. Free black was a term used to describe black Africans who were either not subject to slavery or who were descendants of former slaves who were now free. All source materials indicate that Sarah was born free, but in colonial Africa, where people were viewed as commodities to be bought, sold and exploited. This free status was not to last. It's unclear how Sarah ended up in Cape Town with César. Some sources suggest that César persuaded her to join him in Cape Town to work, while others suggest she was forced to join him. Some of the research material even suggests that César had bought Sarah's freedom. But there's no recorded evidence of this, and no one seems to claim ownership of Sarah, which would be the case if she was to be sold on to a trader like César. Sarah worked for the César family in Cape Town for approximately two years, first as a washerwoman and then as a nursemaid. She worked first in Peter César's household and then for his brother Hendrik. Sarah had a relationship with a Dutch soldier, Hendrik van Jong, but that relationship ended when his regiment were dispatched away from Cape Town. Sarah had an unusual body type by European standards. Reports suggest that she had steatopigia, which the common condition found in Khoikhoi people, and others in the southern parts of the African continent. Steatopigia is characterized by excess levels of tissue accumulated primarily on the buttocks and thighs. This was enough to make Sarah a curiosity that could be used to make money by exhibiting her to European audiences who viewed her as an exotic oddity. Hendrik Cesar was an entrepreneur and always on the lookout for money-making schemes. In Sarah, he saw the potential to generate substantial profits. He began to show Sarah at a local city hospital in Cape Town in exchange for cash. We don't know how this arrangement began or how willing Sarah was to participate. Did he agree to share some of the profits with her? Or was her participation non-negotiable? Hendricks soon caught the attention of Scottish military surgeon Alexander Dunlop. Dunlop had a side business of providing British showmen with exotic animal specimens and believed that they could find success in exhibiting Sarah in Europe. When I researched this and I first read about Alexander Dunlop, the two words that come to mind are slaver and poacher, and both are equally reprehensible. When Dunlap approached Sarah with his proposal, she refused. Sarah then said that she would only go if Hendrik joined her, to which Hendrik refused. Eventually, in 1810, the party left Cape Town to make the arduous journey to London. Before leaving for Europe, Hendrik had Sarah sign a contract, although Sarah was illiterate as were most people at the time so she really couldn't fully consent to the terms that she was allegedly agreeing to. The contract made Sarah an indentured servant for an undisclosed number of years. However, it wasn't honoured, and she was later sold into slavery in France. We don't know whether Sarah was happy about this arrangement or if she was coerced into travelling and exhibiting herself. Dunlop secured accommodation for the group on Duke Street St. James, which at the time was one of the most expensive areas in London. Remember when I said Alexander Dunlop was a slaver? Two young African boys also lived with them, likely procured by Dunlop illegally during his time in Cape Town. The British had abolished slavery three years earlier in 1807 but most slaves in British colonies were not actually freed until 1838. While the public marvelled at Sarah's exhibition, many people were morally opposed to displaying people for financial gain. In a BBC article, Justin Parkinson tells us that, quote, campaigners were appalled at Bartman's treatment in London, end quote. Initially, Sarah was exhibited at the home of influential Dutch-British interior decorator and Regency-era designer Thomas Hope. Hope had styled a room in his house at No. 10 Duchess Street Cavendish Square with Egyptian-inspired decor, and he relished in showing off the room to those unfamiliar with any culture outside of their own. Duchess Street was directly around the corner from Dunlop's residence on Duke Street, in the exclusive Mayfair area of central London. Authors Crass and Scully wrote the definitive book on Sarah's life titled Sarah Bartman and the Hottentot Venus A Ghost Story and a Biography. In this book, they state that while being othered as the Hottentot Venus, Sarah was, quote, seen by Westerners as alluring and primitive. A reflection of their fears and suppressed desires." End quote. They propose that people came to see Sarah because, quote, "They saw her not as a person, but as a pure example of this one part of the natural world." End quote. Sarah's case differs from the others being discussed in this episode because of the overtly sexual element of her exploitation. Sarah was styled as the Hottentot Venus. This is now recognized as a racist and inaccurate an term as there is not actually a Hottentot ethnic group. I'm using this term here without racist intent, but to explain what the term means, the context in which it was used and how it was weaponized against the people of South Africa. But it's been speculated that early settlers in the Dutch Cape Colony in the 1650s started using the term in a derogatory manner to refer to the distinctive click consonants in the Khoikhoi language by 1700 and onwards the term had evolved to refer to all black people regardless of where they came from or which ethnic group they belonged to it was around this time that europeans began to categorize ethnic groups by color and mistakenly categorised groups together that had no relationship to each other and didn't even speak the same language. By the 18th century, Hottentot was used as a term of derision to describe primitive savagery in the same way that barbarian and cannibal had been used previously. Before researching this episode, I'd heard of and known about Sarah Bartman and had most likely heard the term Hottentot Venus applied to her but I really had no idea of the meaning or significance of this phrase before doing a deeper dive into the material. I'd assumed that this must have been a place name for somewhere that I just hadn't heard of yet. As a non-American, I'm used to not getting specific cultural references in TV and media. To this day, I have never seen an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or Reading Rainbow. I only know of them through the nostalgia of those who knew and loved them as children and now post about them online. On a similar note, sometimes very nuanced and specific phrases and references go completely over my head, as I have no familiarity with them or frame of reference. This is why I was so shocked to find out that Hottentot was a racial term and that it had been hidden in plain view in much of our media over the past century. The ideas around this term were so ingrained in popular culture in the West that there are even references to it in popular films such as Mary Poppins and The Wizard of Oz. I don't want to give this term or the ideas around it any more exposure than I have to. If you're interested in finding out the history of this and how blatant it was in the media, you can just do a Google search or you can start with some of the sources that I have referenced on the Propensity Pod website. Further to the racist undertones of this term, there was also a sexual connotation to it. For centuries, sailors, soldiers and colonialists whispered of a peculiar anatomical wonder that the women of the southern tip of Africa seemed to share. Sarah Goodfellow describes how the French called it tablier and joyo, while in Latin it was known as macronympha. In English, speakers went back and forth between calling it the drape of decency or the Curtain of Shame, which really says a lot more about the culture of the people naming the phenomenon than they realise. The widely accepted name for this across Europe was the Hottentot Apron. It was believed that the women of this region had a specific piece of skin that hung between their legs and covered their genitalia. This, of course, was completely incorrect as there was no real physical difference between the women of the southern tip of the African Cape and women anywhere else in the world. Similar rumours and falsehoods also circulated about the women of China, Southeast Asia and I'm sure lots of other populations around the world, and none of them were true. What these rumours in this case referred to was an enlarged labia minora, or the inner lips of the vagina. In women with steatopogea, which is more common in women of this region, the genitals can also be affected, as was likely the case with Sarah. Goodfellow tells us that at a time when crania were measured as an indication of intelligence, the Hottentot apron was regarded as evidence of both bestiality and levaciousness. She added that for many Europeans who already believed in their own racial superiority to those they had subjugated. This enlarged genitalia, quote, could only be the product of a depraved culture, end quote. In the racial hierarchy that colonialism encourages, Goodfellow tells us that the Hottentots were ranked below other Africans, quote, occupying a liminal position between humankind and apes, end quote. The association of exaggerated genitalia and protruding fat deposits in the buttocks meant that Sarah was viewed as a sexual object by audiences. She was often displayed almost entirely naked. She was allowed to wear a tan loincloth upon her insistence that she cover up what was culturally sacred. It's been suggested that there was an element of erotic projection by those who viewed Sarah. As she was perceived through the dual lens of colonialism, and patriarchy Some of the promotional material at the time implied that Sarah was the missing link between man and beast Sarah soon caught the attention of abolitionists from the African Association who believed that she was being exploited by her handlers and was being held against her will Leading abolitionist Zachary Macaulay drove a newspaper campaign arguing for Sarah's release On the 24th of November, 1810, just months after her arrival in Britain, the matter was taken to court. Sarah's supporters contended that the men who had brought Sarah to London had referred to her as property. They argued that she was being exhibited under coercion and in degrading conditions. Sarah was questioned in court in Dutch for three hours with an interpreter to relay her answers to the court in English. Dunlop was present in the courtroom for the duration of Sarah's testimony. A lot of people believed that this fact influenced her answers and furthered the claims of coercion. Sarah's testimony stated that she was not under restraint and had not been abused sexually or physically and that she was entitled to half of the profits garnered from the shows. This directly contradicted the witness testimony of those who had witnessed her poor treatment and exploitation behind the scenes by both Hendrik and Dunlop. The case against Alexander Dunlop and Hendrik Cesar was dismissed due to lack of evidence. There's no indication that Sarah received any of the profits from her time as a human exhibit, nor that she was free to leave at any time. Historians have since determined that her testimony to the court was coerced. Ironically, the court case bolstered Sarah's fame throughout Britain, and she travelled with Dunlop and Hendrick for several more years, performing again and again for insatiable crowds. Despite the earlier claims that Sarah was free to leave at any time and was completely independent in her decision to perform or not, it appears that she was sold and changed hands several times. This next section about Sarah is going to be difficult to listen to because the conditions around her captivity changed for the worst. In September 1814, She travelled to France with a man called Henry Taylor, who subsequently sold her to an animal trainer called S. Rowe. This was not his real name. He had previously been deported from the Cape Colony for seditious behaviour. As previously mentioned, slavery was illegal in Britain, which afforded Sarah at least some rights and limited her mistreatment, at least legally, if not morally and ethically. Slavery would not be abolished in France until April 1848. During her time in Paris, Sarah was essentially enslaved. She was exhibited at the Palais Royal in Paris and later at private parties for the wealthy elite. The eugenics movement was taking off in France at the time and Sarah became a specimen to be studied under what we now refer to as scientific racism. All reports suggest that Roe was a man of low character, who would do anything and exploit anyone if it meant lining his own pockets. Reports suggest that he allowed patrons to sexually abuse Sarah and even prostituted her against her will. Now we would call it slavery and human trafficking. Crass and Scully suggest that by the time Sarah arrived in Paris, quote, her existence was really quite miserable and extraordinarily poor. End quote. They say that she was literally treated as an animal. They also claim that there's evidence to suggest that her captors also placed a collar around her neck to further her dehumanisation and degradation. The cruel treatment and relentless voyeurism Sarah endured after she arrived in France took its toll. And Sarah died on the 29th of December, 1815, at the age of 26. Her cause of death was listed as inflammatory and eruptive disease. It has since been suggested that her death could have been a combination of alcoholism, pneumonia, or even syphilis. After her death, French anatomist and naturalist, Georges Cuvier, who had met Sarah while she was alive, conducted a dissection of her body. He took meticulous notes. Cuvier was a leading proponent of scientific racism. He and others like him believed in a racial hierarchy, which unsurprisingly placed white men, of which he was one, at the very top of the pyramid. Cuvier later published his dissection notes. He is noted as interpreting Sarah's remains through a limited lens and every finding he made was in accordance with his own theories of racial evolution. He described Sarah as having ape-like traits and said that while alive, she had, quote, the quickness of a monkey, end quote. Prior to her dissection, Cuvier made a plaster cast of Sarah's body. He also took it upon himself to remove her brain and genitalia. He pickled them in jars and preserved her skeleton. Cuvier also wrote about the Hottentot apron in reference to Sarah and other women like her. He said that, quote, there is nothing more celebrated in natural history than the Hottentot apron. And at the same time, there is nothing which has been the object of such great argumentation. End quote. Another naturalist, Etienne Geoffrey Saint-Hilaire, applied on behalf of the Natural History Museum to have Sarah's cast, skeleton and remaining organs displayed as he believed they were of scientific interest. His petition was approved and her remains were displayed publicly in the Natural History Museum in Angiers until 1974. We return to Sarah's story later in the episode. Now we're going to look at late 19th and early 20th century human zoos. For six months, in 1896, over 2 million spectators visited the village noir in Geneva. This was during the Swiss Second National Exhibition. Approximately 200 Senegalese individuals were transplanted from their homes to populate a supposed replica of one of their villages back home. We've no visual references to this to compare to an authentic Senegalese village but it's more than probable that the village was instead constructed to fulfil a stereotype. A stereotype of what those in Western Europe imagined an African village to look like. The Senegalese people acted out their daily lives for paying visitors, and their religious ceremonies and rites of passage were played out as public events. Some in Swiss society objected to the display of humans for the entertainment of the public. Others categorized them as a threat and worried about a possible, I'm using air quotes here, black invasion, as the Senegalese were free to move throughout Geneva during their free time. The practice of displaying exotic people for profit began during the Age of Exploration in the 15th and 16th centuries. When Christopher Columbus returned to the Spanish court of King Ferdinand II and Queen Isabella I, he brought with him seven individuals from the West Indies that he mistakenly called Arawak Indians. Amerigo Vespucci brought more than 200 natives with him from the Americas when he returned to Spain. Many more had died of injury or disease on the difficult voyage to Spain. Anne Driesbeck tells us that in many cases, these native captives, quote, could not cope with the alien world, suffering from homesickness, reacting adversely to the unusual food and dying of diseases unknown to them, end quote. Next, I'm going to tell you about the fake Congo village exhibit that was set up in Belgium in 1897. In the late 19th century, King Leopold II of Belgium looked at the colonial expansion of other European countries in the African continent and decided that he wanted some of that action for himself. He unsuccessfully petitioned the Belgian government to support Belgian expansion to the Congo Basin. But those in Paris seemed to be ambivalent about this prospect. This angered Leopold who decided to proceed without governmental support to establish his own personal African colony. He found support in other Western countries who were also in the process of carving up the African landmass to exploit for their own benefit. In 1885, Leopold had established the Congo Free State, but the people of that region were anything but free. A non-governmental organisation called the International African Association was set up to manage the Congo Free State. It had a single shareholder, King Leopold II, and operated as a corporate state. I wanted to tell you about the brutal red rubber system implemented in the Congo Free State by Leopold and his foot soldiers. In this system, local populations were essentially enslaved, murdered, and maimed in the name of profit. Famines were orchestrated, and up to 20 million Congolese people perished as a direct and indirect result of Leopold inserting his interests into his pet project and personal colony. But there isn't time to do this justice in this episode. I have researched and written extensively about this and have another project planned where I hope to cover the shameful and tragic history of this time period in more detail. I just want to let you know here that I know of and am aware of this abhorrent chapter in Belgian history, and I'm not glossing over it. There just isn't enough time or scope in this episode to do it justice. I will come back to it though. Which brings us to 1897 the Belgians didn't just view the Congolese as a form of labour. They also viewed them as an exotic curiosity that Europeans would pay to see exhibited. In 1897, King Leopold II imported approximately 267 native Congolese people to the Belgian capital, Brussels. It was Leopold's intention to display the group in Terre east of Brussels, where he had a colonial palace. He had built the Colonial Palace on the site of the former pavilion of the Prince of Orange that had been destroyed by a fire in 1879. Leopold viewed the Colonial Palace and its displays, including his Human Zoo project, as propaganda to showcase his successes in the African colony. The Brussels International Exhibition took place between May and November 1897. Some of the attractions included a monorail, a hippodrome, which is a public theatre venue, a velodrome, which is a bicycle racing track, and a sports field. In addition to this, three fenced replica Congolese villages were created. A fourth village operated by a Christian missionary, Abbot Van Imp, was also established. But in contrast to the other villages, Its purpose was to show the supposed civilization of native peoples through religion and education. An estimated 1.3 million Belgians visited the Congolese exhibition, but the exploitative nature of the exhibit was not lost on some of the visitors. A journalist for La Nationale wrote the following in an article published on the 10th of July 1897. Quote, there is even something quite degrading for humanity to see these unfortunate people parked like this, left to the sometimes distressing and degrading reflections of the white people who are rushing to the new show, End quote. The summer of 1897 was marred by unusually cold and wet weather for that time of year. Seven of the Congolese who had been forced to exhibit themselves died over the course of the summer from a combination of pneumonia and influenza. They were barred from being buried in the local cemetery and were instead interred in a mass grave on unconsecrated ground outside the church that the African Museum of Belgium tells us was reserved for adulterers and suicides. In 1953, after a public campaign, the bodies were moved and reburied in the courtyard of the Catholic Church of St. John the Evangelist. The deaths caused public controversy at the time, but it wasn't enough to prevent Leopold from establishing a permanent museum within the colonial palace. The Museum of the Congo was established and moved to a purpose-built venue designed by French architect Charles Giraud, opening in 1910. This was just months after Leopold's death. It is now called the African Museum. The apparent financial success of the Congolese village exhibition meant that some form of public human exhibit was in place for many decades after the Brussels International Exhibition of 1897. By the late 1950s, the Belgian Congo were vying for independence. For Expo 58, the Belgians established the largest Congo village exhibition in history. This was far bigger than the 1897 exhibition had been. This was in part to showcase their apparent successes in the Congo and to justify their ongoing presence there to the public. In total, 598 people were transported from the Congo to Belgium for the exhibit. Unlike the 1897 exhibition, the Congolese in 1958 were kept off-site and bussed in for the exhibition. They complained of cramped conditions and isolation, and by July 1958, many had left to return home. The Congolese exhibit was closed down soon after this, although the rest of Expo 58 continued as planned. This marked the final human zoo in modern history now back to sarah's story sarah bartman's story was largely forgotten until 1981 when paleontologist stephen j gould wrote about her story in his book the mismeasure of man in 1994 when the african national congress or anc came to power Newly elected President Nelson Mandela made a formal request to France to return Sarah's remains to her homeland. The French government, while willing to repatriate Sarah's remains, wanted to ensure that other countries and former colonies would not be able to use this instant as a priest and to reclaim the treasures that had previously been stolen. It took the French National Assembly eight years to develop and approve a carefully crafted bill to ensure that this could not legally happen. On the 6th of March 2002, Sarah's remains were finally returned to South Africa. Sarah Bartman's legacy has exceeded her short life. In 2015, the Sarah Bartman District Municipality in the Eastern Cape Province was named in her honour. An environmental protection vessel, the Sarah Bartman, is named after her, along with a hall at the University of Cape Town. Sarah was not the first person stolen from her homeland or exploited for an audience who viewed her as nothing more than an object to be gawked at. But she is perhaps one of the most heavily discussed. The last human zoo exhibition was more than 60 years ago but many former empires have yet to atone for their part in the whole-scale dehumanisation and exploitation of millions of people. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. Please share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it as it really helps to grow the podcast and introduce it to new and wider audiences. As always, thank you for your support and thank you for listening.